Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Musician's Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Mark, and today I have the privilege of speaking with producer slash engineer slash musician, Jack Mealy. Jack has worked with some incredible artists, um, to name a few, CeeLo Green, The Iceman Special, Steve Vai, The Zac Brown Band, Ricky Lee Jones, I mean his list goes on and on and on. He's an incredible musician um, and he plays with this band called Molly Ringwells, but we're not going to talk about that much today, we're going to really talk more about the production stuff. I got a lot out of this conversation and I'm hoping that you will too. If you are, do me a favor, smash that rate button, give us a review, give us a follow, it helps us as we continue to grow and create content for you guys. But for now, let me quit my blabbering. Ladies and gentlemen, Louisiana's own, Jack Mealy. Hey, Jack, how's it going? It's going fine. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I truly appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thank you, Travis. I appreciate you reaching out. And, and you know, I, I, I do this kind of thing kind of sparingly, but, I, you know, it's, it, it seemed like you had a good, uh, a good show. So I, was, I said, okay, I told Caitlin to, to green light it. Awesome. No, I I truly appreciate that. Well, Jack, let's get started. I don't want to waste your time. Um, As mentioned, I've got a few things prepared, but typically what I do is with every guest, um, as sort of weird as it may feel, I always ask everybody to introduce themselves so that our listeners kind of have an idea of where you're coming from and where you've been before we kind of delve into your career. So if you wouldn't mind, tell the world who Jack Miele is. Uh, my name is Jack Mealy. I'm a producer, engineer, uh, and multi-instrumentalist from New Orleans, Louisiana. Amazing. And now you've been producing for a while. I know you play. We're going to try to stick more to the production questions. Um, okay. I want to know what made you decide to focus more on the production side of music and what were the points in your career once you had made that decision that you had kind of thought, you know, I think I can really do this. Okay, so two part of question. Um, the first part of your question is what, like, where in my career did I decide to be a producer? Yes. Um, uh, I, I really didn't make a conscious that I can remember a conscious decision. I, um, to you know, to be honest with you, I always thought I would. Uh, I always kind of wanted to be uh, a movie director. To be honest, amazing. Um, so I, you know, for not to get too off subject, I even owned a videography company for a while and wanted to start trying to maybe go that route. But the, uh, the producer thing, what ended up happening was it was just, it was just, everything was built kind of out of necessity. Meaning like I, I was not, I was always a musician and writer. You know, I was always that guy. I was never the, the studio guy. As a matter of fact, even when I was younger, when I went into studios with my bands, I, I never, I never asked. I didn't care. I never asked like, what microphone is that that goes on this? Or what, how are you doing this? Or what, what, what does it take to go into? What is, what is a compressor? What is, I never did that. I wasn't, I wasn't that guy. Cause I get a lot of those guys now, you know, who comes in, who come in there, they're, they're the musician or the artist and they're, they're asking me all these questions. I never did that. I didn't care. All I wanted to do was make sure that, that the record sounded good. And and I was also one of those people that got kind of frustrated because it never 
it, the records never ever came out sounding like I heard it in my head. Um, and there was maybe one record that did that I in my early uh, in my early days when I was maybe nineteen or twenty years old, I did a record. Um, it was a I wouldn't even call it a, a band. It was more of a project with with a bunch of friends. And that record, we spent a a, a great deal of time and money, and it actually did come out the way that I had envisioned it and it went nowhere, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but that being said, um, I, uh, was in, I was in different bands and what ended up happening was, was that these certain bands needed, needed record recordings. And, and I'm, I am very much a type a personality of kind of a grab the bull by the horns person. And if something needs to happen, I just do it. I, I'm I'm the kind of person that doesn't like to rely on anybody else. So if something needs to be done, I just that you, you just do it yourself, you know. So that's what ended up happening was that I really cared more about being um, an engineer. Like I didn't even, you know, I, I was more like in the engineering game, and um, and so I learned. To, to, geez, I guess it was uh, two thousand two. 2001 2002 so tw- you know over 20 years 21 22 years uh i started making records and uh and they were terrible you know they were awful but it didn't matter because it was exciting because i was i was doing it and learning it you know and um and that's sort of how it happened it just happened out of necessity it happened because my band needed something and i started doing it. and what happened was is that i started guinea pigging um all of this gear that i was buying because uh, I started out, you know, buying like some ADAP machines, and uh, and uh, I had a console that was museum loaned to me for an old Ramsa console that was museum loaned to me from a friend, and um, and I had, you know, mics that I didn't even know what the mics were good for. I didn't even know like, oh, this mic is good for this, and this mic's good for. That. I had no idea. I just had a few sort of like land of misfit toys mics that you know, friends of mine had left over and I would just started cobbling this stuff together and I would make these recordings out of my house with my friends trying to get it to sound good and it never did. But, uh, but it was, like I said, it was exciting. And, um, and then what, what happened was, is that once I got serious about it, um, serious in, in my own head, like I, I'm going to get good at this. Like once, once that, once I decide to do something, I just do it. And so, uh, once I decided I'm going to be good at this, I um, I started recording everybody I knew for free. I um, I wanted to just record as many people as I could to try and get good so I could make my own records, <laughs> you know. And uh, as life goes, um, you know, if you're good at something, you should never do it for free, you know. So I, I feel like, you know, well, that's a broad spectrum quote, but it's uh you know, I, I generally started to charge people because it was taking up so much time and, uh, you know, and whenever you're tunnel visioned into a project, that's hard on life and relationships and things like that. So, uh, so I started charging for it and it was very minimal at first. I think it was $25 an hour or something like that, or $20 an hour. It was, it was very cheap, uh, for as far as recording goes. And I, uh, I started and then I eventually I had a little small business doing this and like anything, what happened was, is that the projects that I cared about recording myself started to fall by the wayside, you know, because you get 
once you start monetizing it and it becomes a business, well, then it, it your time becomes money, you know? Yeah. So that's that's kind of how that happened. That's cool. And I've got a couple of things that I want to segue um, out of from your, sure. from your answer there. Question one, um, you mentioned um, how if you're tunnel visioned, you can, it can really affect just life and relationships and things like that. So uh, the first question I'll ask is, how do you find when you're as busy as someone like you is, how do you find a bit of a work life balance? I mean, I, I follow you on Instagram and, and all the social medias and stuff like that. You're always working, which, you know, I find that to be admirable. I, I too enjoy work and I try to stay busy. But I just, when it comes to musician mindsets, in my experience thus far in my life, they seem to be like really hard panned to two schools of thought. It's either the you work all the time kind of guys or the... Uh, I kind of work when I feel like it kind of guys. And and those guys always seem to, in my opinion, have a lot of excuses, but, you know, each to their own. Um, how do you find a work-life balance when you're this busy? Well, first off, um, most of the time, I, I will I will preface this by saying most of the time, not all the time. Most of the time, work brings me a lot of balance and happiness. And and I I feel very fulfilled as a person to when I work. Because I feel like I'm contributing something, even if it's in the entertainment industry, you know, I feel like I'm contributing something into the world, a piece of art that's going to, that's going to, you know, hopefully live longer than I will, you know. So I, I do, it, it does bring me a, a sense of um, fulfillment to, to, to work. Um, that being said, I, I learned, uh, I'm in my 40s now, and I learned a long time ago that it really does strain relationships when you when you work too much and uh because and, and that could be relationships with your wife with your kids i don't have any kids but i've you know that's the old you know the old saying is that like you know I, dad's always working you know so it, it can strain a whole bunch of like friendships like i've noticed that you know it's um it's a little more difficult for me to to, to hang out these days uh, so it's, you know, and then you, you become a little more socially awkward because you don't hang out as much. Um, so when you do hang out, it's, it's, it feels a little more alien. Um, so th to answer your question, how do you balance that? So what I do is, and when you, when you own your own business, it's difficult to do this, but I try to do this. I, I, I take cues from, uh, from one of my heroes, Alfred Hitchcock oh, cool. and, you know, Hitchcock was the guy who he made some of the greatest films ever put on screen. It's like, these are, there's actually even a, a film directing, you know, adjective named after him, Hitchcockian, you know, when people look at, you know, when people look at films and they go, it's, it's a very Hitchcockian theme here that they're talking about Hitchcock. Right. Mm. So this is a guy who, who made some of the greatest films of all time. And he worked nine to five every day and he took weekends off and he um you know this is a guy who who basically knew that at you know it was like a big to do i know a lot about the history of of, of his films and stuff but if he had to like go over five o'clock it was a big to do it was like the unions went crazy and he you know like it was you know even even 30 minutes over it was like just sitting it didn't happen usually and 
And so I'm like, you know, if this guy can make some of the greatest, you know, of all time, then, you know, in, in those hours, then, then I can set parameters as well and try to do that. And so, and of course those parameters get challenged, you know, um, you're dealing with musicians, you know, and I, I basically try to tell musicians, they say, well, how do you like to work? I'm usually about a nine or a 10 in the morning. I, I usually like to try and start, it depends on what shore I'm on. If I'm on the North shore, I'll start at 10. If I'm on the, I'm sorry, if I'm on the North shore, I'll start at nine. If I'm on the South shore, I'll start at 10. And, and I usually go until like seven o'clock, eight o'clock every now and then, but usually about seven. So it's like a, it's like a nine or 10 to seven type deal. Um, and, uh, and then after that, cause I'm, I, I you lose me after that. You totally lose my, you lose my focus, my concentration, my head starts to wander. I, I just, I'm not very good after that. Now I've done sessions with, with people who, you know, when I was managing the music shed, like we'd get calls, like we got calls from like, you know, a lot, especially a lot of the pop, you know, rap guys that like to, they like to work late. Like, I mean, it would be, we got a call from Drake, you know, that he, they wanted to work, start working at 2 AM, you know, and they wanted to go till about 10 AM. And, and I, and I told, I basically told him, I, was, I don't care. I, I said, let me see if I have an engineer that'll do that. I said, because you're not getting me for that. I, I don't, I don't care enough. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't mean I don't care about I'll, I'll rephrase. I'm not impressed enough to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like I just, I just basically was like, you know, I, I wish you luck. Have a great session. I'm not available in those hours, you know? So, um, and the same thing happened with, with, uh, we had a few couple sessions with Cardi B. It was the same thing. It was super late, uh, type of thing. And I just, you know, unless I really, really want to be involved uh, would I do that? You know, if Pearl Jam called and wanted to do that, I'd probably make an exception. <laughs> you know? yeah. And it's kind so, of cool because you, you've set yourself boundaries. And I think that, I think that's, again, it's an admirable thing to do, you know? And, and I appreciate that. It, but it, it's still, it's still difficult because, you know, I have, you know, I have clients that I have, I'm producing their record and I have relationships with them and, you know, seven, eight, nine o'clock, the texts are rolling in, you know, like, Hey, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this? What, and I'm I'm trying to like text them back politely and and sort of keep it short. And it's like, but you know, like I said, when you own your own business, I I can't tell you, I just can't tell you how often I've seen this. That it's the guy that answers the phone that gets the gig. Yeah. You know, like so. There's there have been major major gigs in my career that I got just because they were calling around and I was the only guy that answered the phone, you know, and it just so happened that, you know, it happened to be like a major artist that's going to be in town and they're looking for a studio or a producer to work with. And they're calling around on Google to all the studios slash producers and they can't get anybody on the phone. And I'm the guy that answers the phone. So I've seen it happen multiple, multiple times and it's led to some really great things. So, you know, it just depends as a, you have to decide as an individual, you know, how hard you want to push, you know, I, I want to be at the top of the heap, you know? And so, so I push hard to get there. Yeah. You know? No, I think that's awesome. So 
just again to segue out of your very first answer you mentioned mm-hmm. how once you kind of decided to do this you you took on a lot of free jobs and you were trying to figure out your gear guinea pig the gear i think you said that kind of thing mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on the sort of audio field now in in regards to you know the average young guy kind of finishes school he might be interested or she might be interested in audio engineering or sound and they they go and study to do that at an institution versus you know doing it the way you and many others have done it like learning by almost treating the gear as an instrument and you learn it as you go and or even you know you go back a bit further and how these guys would work under a producer for years and years and years and then them themselves became big producers what are your thoughts on the whole you know I've got this degree and now I'm a producer kind of vibe that we seem to have going on in the world. Boy, this is a complicated question because it's, I I need to, I need to really choose my words carefully here because it's, it's one of the types of things where I'm not going to be the person that's going to tell anybody not to go to school. You know, um, you know, I I don't want to say that there's a lot to be learned. There's a lot of great schools and a lot of great, um, teachers out there, you know, so I, I deal. Okay. So in my 22 years of doing this, I have personally owned one, hold on, let's see. About five studios. Wow. And the commercial studios and, uh, and I've, I've owned five and run six. You know, so I was like the operations manager of one that I didn't own. And then I owned the other five. And, um, you know, I was like physically the guy who rented the space and owned. um, I didn't own the like in some cases I owned the building. In some cases, I was the guy on the lease owning the, you know, owning the the rental space. Yeah. So um, of those studios, uh, we've had a lot of interns walk through the doors. And I, I would, I still get many calls for interns. Uh, and I, the thing about internships is that they would come from these, these schools and a lot of the schools would require an internship in order to graduate. So they would come in and they would, they would work on me. And I found that I found it ironic that all of these schools that were doing this, not one of them, I felt that I could see. Because like I said, I didn't go to school there. But from what I could see from the interns that came from these schools, not one of them learned how to be an entrepreneur, you know. And and you, you if you're going to be, I feel like especially in today's age, it's not as it's not like going out and becoming, uh, you know, an X-ray tech. You know, it's like it. There's not the the jobs just aren't there. Like I I equate. You know, I equate studios more to like hair salons, you know, like there are studios that, you know, if, if, and this is a huge if, if they will take you, because a lot of studios, at least the ones that I know, are very, um, uh, very tight doored, you know, like as far as like hiring new engineers. Yeah. And, and if you were like, for instance, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the studios I do a lot of work at is Studio in the Country and uh, in Bogalusa. Yeah, cool. Story. And when 
Yeah, it's a great studio. And when I, uh, Jay Wesley is, is a, a great guy. He trusts me. And when I'm there, you know, he does, uh, assist and help out. But if, if, if I told him, Hey man, don't worry about it. Like he would just let me in, let me do my thing, you know, uh, because he trusts me. He knows that I'm a, a good engineer and that I'm not going to, I had a previous relationship there with, when Ben was running it and, um, and usually I would just walk in and when Ben was there, I would just walk in and just, you know, sort of run the place myself, you know, be the only engineer there. Yeah. And, um, and I get a good rate there and that's the way it goes. So it's sort of like a, almost like a sublet for the day, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, so like I said, kind of like a hair salon, like, like if you have your own clients, you can rent this little cubicle, you know, but I'm not going to give you clients. And that, that sort of mentality, the the days of having staff engineers, like they do have staff engineers at studios, don't get me wrong, but the days of getting out of school and, and kind of shopping a resume around to get a staff engineering job, boy, man, you're talking about that's difficult to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, now, like I said, with Studio in the Country, I'm able to, to sublet it for the day and go out there and work, you know, uh, but... I'm not their staff engineer, you know? So, you know, I think the only staff engineer they have is the guy that runs it, Jay, hmm. you know? So it, I, I would be, it would be cause studios don't, they don't make the kind of money they used to, Yeah, you know? So the, the kind of overhead to pay a staff engineer, it's just really, it's kind of gone the way of the Dodo in my, at least in my experience, I, I don't like, you know, I know all the studios in town and, and they all have staff engineers and usually if they have any staff engineer that's not the quote unquote owner, it's only maybe one guy, you know, and that guy is somebody who was, who knew somebody to get in, you know, so to, to come out of school blind and just try to start shopping a resume to get a, with no experience, you know what I'm saying? It's like, as um, it's, it's kind of like a musician gig. Like you can get out of school for music but they don't, they don't care. Anybody who's going to hire you as a musician doesn't care unless you're joining the symphony. You know, they don't care whether or not you have a degree. They care if you can play. Yeah, completely. You know, so, so if, um, if, an, if a, a young student got out of school and went over to a studio and said, I'd like to get a job here. And they said, okay, well, what have you done? And they said, well, I just got out of school and here's my thing. And I've done a couple of projects with friends and whatever, like that, that's, Who's going to want to bank their business that has, you know, almost a million dollars worth of gear on a, on a kid who's never touched a real LA two way before they've only used the plugin, yeah. you know, like it, it's scary to like, cause I mean, I can tell you right now, I've got, I've got tons of old vintage mics that are worth a ton of money, you know, that I, and even, even when I was running my, my businesses where I had people I trusted, there were certain mics that he had a huge sign on it for Jack Mealy use only, <laughs> you know? So, because they're too, they're, they're, they're too valuable and they're too hard to replace or repair, you know? So, um, so yeah, I guess the long winded answer of where, of what you're asking me is what do I think about institutions that teach audio engineering? I think that I think they're they're great. I think you can learn a lot, but I think you need to learn how to make the 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 skill of making your own action is what people I think are missing. You know, as is the hustle. You know, because that's what this is. You know, the music industry is a hustle. Completely. You know. Yeah. And I don't mean a hustle in a bad way, like you're being hustled. I mean like 
It means like hustle, like hurry up. You have to be assertive and you have to go out and work doesn't just come to you all the time. You have to go out and seek it, you know? Very much so, you know? And, and I mean, again, we're not going to go into the, the gigging and the live thing too much, but that's exactly sure. the same. I mean, yeah, you, yeah, you, they're, they're, they're almost the two, you know, two sides of the same coin. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So, um, bit of a, bit of an interesting one, but what do you think some of the hardest lessons you've had to learn as a producer have been? Wow. Uh, okay. I wasn't ready for that one. Let me, uh, let me <laughs> uh, cause yeah, I really, uh, I can tell you patience is one of them. Oh yeah. That's uh, a big one. Oh man. Like not as a producer, 90% of what I do is psychology. Wow. You know? It really, it really is. It's, um, you know, as an engineer, 90% of what you do is technical, but as a producer, 90% of what you do is psychology. It's your job is to, as a producer is to bring the best out of that artist. And in order to do that, you need to try and figure out the inner workings of that artist's psyche and, and how to reverse engineer that, you know? So how hard can you push somebody or, you know that you're only going to get the best out of them if you push them, hmm. you know, and you know, how, how, you know, up the artist's butt are you, how hands off are you? Like there are, there are certain guys that do better if you just let them come to it on their own, you know? And so you have to really gauge a person, you know, um, cause it's really just a producer. It's about relationships and, and, you know, what does a producer do? They produce, you know, they produce results. They produce records. It's their job to get this record out on time and under or on budget. Yeah. You know, so it's not just producing is not just working with the songs and working with the, the studios. It's, it's figuring out budgets. It's figuring out timelines. It's figuring out, you know, how to get the, the song the pre-production, getting the songs right. It's, it's figuring out, you know, how to deal with the labels and get, you know, get what the artist wants, but also get what the label is looking for too, you know? So, because, you know, ultimately sometimes you get hired by the label, not by the band, Yeah. you know? So, so basically you're, you know, in those cases, which I've only had a few of, in those cases, your employer is technically the label, not the artist, you know? So if the label says we are looking for singles, and the artist comes in and is trying to make an experimental, you know, Zydeco album, yeah. you know, it's like, it doesn't, it, it really, it makes this, you know, it makes it difficult because you're like, where are we going with this? You know? And, and then, you know, the, depending on how big the artist is, how much control they have, that kind of thing. But so you, you deal with those types of things too. And all that becomes psychology and patience is, is a hard lesson to learn because, I used to be a lot less patient of a human being than I am now. Um, and I was, I was, you know, back in the quote unquote air quotes back in the day, I was much more the, um, the, the screaming and yelling producer that, you know, that I always fantasized about being, <laughs> you know, watching, <laughs> watching these documentaries as a kid, you know, yeah. you f- I want to, I want to flail my arms around and yell at people and whatever. But, um, but you know, and, and, that method yielded results, but it also took years off of my life. Of you know, course. I mean, it's just the, the amount of stress you deal with. It's like, so 
I try to try and take everything in stride now. And I, I basically, I try to ask the hard questions, you know, like that's the, like, like instead of flailing my arms and go, you know, this sucks or, you know, and, 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 you know, getting mad about it. I, I you sit down the artist and, and ask them the hard question. Like, is this really the best we can do? Are you really satisfied with this? You know? And like, cause I, I feel like at this point, I feel like we're shortchanging it, you know? And, and I know we can do better than this, you know? So you're, you're elevating and lifting people up by playing into their, you know, to their confidence, you know, trying to make them, give them the confidence that they require in order to get there, you know? So that's what I, that's one of the harder lessons that I learned. And you learn that with age too. Yeah, of course. You know, I, I was, I was much more, you know, hot headed in my twenties, you know? So, um, as, as we all are, I guess, you know, angry young men, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, something to prove, you know, <laughs> exactly. And, and so now it's, um, you know, that's one of the harder lessons I learned. I also learned that one of the harder lessons I learned was, was what I referenced earlier about, about having to be a, a business and an entrepreneur. It's like, it's, it's not just about making records. It's about producing results, you know? So I am somebody who likes to produce results, you know, and I try to guide artists into making the best record that they can make at that time, you know? And and, uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of young bands and got them to do that, you know, basically got them to sit down and with an objective ear, listen to their own music and go, would you buy this? Yeah. You know, and and so that's the, those are hard questions to ask somebody because you're in a in sort of a way like you're questioning their artistic merit at that point. Yeah, completely. Yeah. You know, so um, but. Nine out of the ten times, the artist will take an objective listen, and they'll go. For some reason, this part isn't exciting me, and and that to get the artist to, in some, not all the time, but but in that moment, in that moment, to get the artist to remove themselves from the situation as a writer, and to listen as a listener that is that's key you know yeah it takes takes the the arrogance out of it puts the humility in right mm -hmm. so, absolutely so let me let me veer off here for a second this wasn't one of sure. the questions i had actually um prepared but i'm imagining that you often find yourself in positions where you're either helping arrange songs possibly even co-writing slash adding things mm -hmm. or taking away from songs. Absolutely. How do you handle the situations where hypothetically uh, artist comes in, they think the song's good. He has a two and a half, three minute song and they play it for you and you go, man, I think if we put this chorus here and we, we use it as a pre-chorus, this is all hypothetical. Of course we use it as a pre-chorus and let's work on a new chorus for this. Um, and you land up pretty much I'm going to use the term co-writing the chorus with them. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find yourself in positions where whoever the artist may be kind of goes, well, no, I wrote this song and, and you're like, well, you know, we wrote that chorus together and you're already possibly taking your producer points, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
have there ever been or have you ever found yourself in kind of murky waters when it comes to I don't want to say songwriting royalties. Uh, I, I want to. I don't even necessarily want to say splits. But some artists get so close to their music that they think, you know, because they have a demo of it, that that song is and was everything that they did, even if massive changes have come. How do you approach this kind of thing? Well, it happens all the time, to be honest. Um, if I'm being completely transparent here, it really does happen all the time. Um, now. Okay, so the way that the way that I used to work this is different from the way that I work it now. Um, arranging something like, "Hey, we should put that chorus in the front," or you should, you know, that pre-chorus should repeat, or let we could move this here. Or that goes into the arranging of things. Um, some I I personally I don't know how everybody else is, but I personally don't seek out any credit or points or, or uh, songwriting splits or anything like that for that kind of thing um, because the song was there uh, and and it's funny because everybody talks about um, everybody talks about this like it's like so complicated but in the, at the end of the day it's pretty simple you know it's like who wrote these parts of the songs and another misconception that a lot of people have is that songwriting splits have to be equal you know but they but they don't you know, you can you can have five percent of a song, you know, um, and, you know, and and publishing, too. You know, I mean, so if like if you because it depends on if there's a late it's a label deal or not, you know. Um, but I guess where I'm going with this is that I have had situations in the past where um, I had one artist um, that comes to mind right now. This is not the only example, of this, but I have one artist where. You know, it's uh, uh, we worked on these tunes, and and there are certain like there's an entire bridge of the song that I wrote, and like and it's so funny because anybody who knows my writing can hear this bridge and go, oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like totally right the kind of thing that I would do, and um, and then the record comes out and it says all songs written by and the artist, and I was like, and I I had a you know. I, I had to basically say, hey, that doesn't seem fair, you know, because I know that we did this together, you know, yeah. and it all worked out and it was fine and it wasn't. But but yeah, but I, basically once those enough of that type of thing happened, um, I basically started to when people say, well, what do you think about it? And I'll cause sometimes I'll just pick up a guitar and and i'm just like kind of noodling or whatever and I'll play something and the artist. Will, Whoa, what was that? What was that? You know? And, and, uh, and then at nowadays I'll stop and go, well, wait a minute, hold on. Are we writing or, or what do you, what role do you want me to, I'll stop and I'll be like, what role do you want me to have? I'm happy to help you with this, but you know, I, I would, I would want it to be fair. And that, you know, if, if I write something, then I would expect to be credited as such. Yeah. And, and, and once again, I'll go back to this, the magic word relationships. It's you have to have a good enough relationship with somebody in order to do that, you know, and all the artists that I deal with now, I have great relationships with. When I see them out, we have, you know, we hug each other and have drinks and, you know, sometimes they come and hang out at my house and so, you know, like I, I have, you know, you build relationships with people and that's, 
That's the key. And so therefore, when those types of things come up, it doesn't become as much of an issue. But then there's been other situations where I have, uh, you know, I've even had this happen where I've done writing for, for artists. The artist and I signed a handwritten contract agreeing to the percentages. And then the at the 11th hour after the record comes out and, and starts to get some um you know basically some other management steps in and sees this and try you know basically tries to get me written out of it and that handwritten contract saved me you know and because they'll try to you know like i've had you know other powers that be try to change the the scope of what we agreed on and i'm like well, wait a minute that's not what we agreed on and this well well it was just you know because it becomes hearsay yeah you know and so the and I'll never, I'll never forget it. So I try to, I try to like keep everything and you know dot i's and cross t's and, but it, it, those that kind of stuff becomes a buzzkill when you are dealing in a studio environment, you know. But, but it's just so important because you just don't know who's going to be the next Billie Eilish, yeah. You know, and and it's like nobody wants to be cut out of a loop. And I and I have producer engineer friends that. All the time they talk about this, you know, they where this is this is not a some sort of, you know, like <laughs> um, moment in, in ancient history. You know, I mean, this is something that, that happens all the time, you know, and and that's why it's best to try and work these things out when there's no money on the table. Like you're getting, you know, 10 percent or 50 percent or 20 percent of a song, but but 20 percent of nothing is nothing. Exactly. You know, so when you work these percentages out, you know, it's easier to do that when there's no money on the table. It's it's but as soon as there is, uh, you know, a half a billion streams and even though everybody's like, oh, streaming doesn't pay anything. Half a billion streams probably adds up to something in the neighborhood of like, I think it adds up to I think I did the math one time. It's something it's a few it's a few million dollars, Hmm. you know, so. Just because streaming doesn't quote unquote pay anything, when you have numbers like in the billions or or a half a billion, you know, you're still talking about millions of dollars, and that is just from Spotify. That's because yeah. you know the, the other streaming services like Tidal and and even Apple Music, they don't tell you how many streams there are, but Spotify actually posts those numbers on the app so you could see it. Yeah. So. If it did a half a billion in Spotify, what did it do in Apple? What did it do in Tidal? What did it do in Deezer or all the other ones, all the other streaming services? So, or, or Amazon streaming, you know, because Prime and all this stuff. So, when you put all that stuff together, you're talking about millions of dollars. Yeah. You know, so if there was a, you know, here's a great example, um, you know, uh, Blinding Light uh, from the, um, from uh, Weekend, you know, so when you're dealing with a song like that, that just on Spotify has a billion streams, you know, man, you're talking about a lot of money. If somebody came up and, you know, in that, that it has over a billion streams and that, that translates to, let's say it translates to, to $5 million. Okay. If, if that translates to five you know million dollars, just 10% of that to most people is kind of life altering money. Very much so. Yeah. You know, so I mean, you know, you're talk you're talking about, you know, what is that, five hundred thousand? Yeah. You know, so it's like you're talking about a half a million dollars to somebody who might not 
you know, have 50,000 in the bank. You know, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about somebody, whoever it could just be. And that's the reason why those percentages matter. And that's why those contracts matter. And, and, uh, and it's just, it's just fair, you know, I mean, because I try to, I try to not be, um, uh, too uh, uh, down on this type of thing, but I, I, you know, good contracts make good friends, and uh, and that's the reason why it's easy. I have an artist right now that I'm working with that, um, it's you know, it's the kind of thing where all parties involved can kind of smell that this may be something, hmm. like like wow, this is really good. This may be something, and we're we have a whole bunch of contractual agreements right now like that are going back and forth because you know we want to be fair every and all parties want to be fair they want to be fair to me and i want to be fair to them so we're working it out now so we don't have to deal with it later seems like a great idea yeah and it's it's difficult because a lot of musicians and i you know engineers and this is the type of thing that that from what i understand they don't teach you in engineering school no you know i, I think you're right you know, so I, I mean, maybe they do. I mean, but I remember even from one of my interns coming in and and I won't say what school it was, but they came from one of the more prestigious uh, or not. Pre- I don't know if the prestigious is the right word. One of the more well-known schools, um, a lot of traffic through this school. And um, and I asked them, I said, let me ask you a question. When you were at blank, did uh, how many critical listening classes did you take? And and he said none. Oh wow! And I, I couldn't be, I couldn't believe it. I said, "How can you be an engineer if you don't know how to listen?" Yeah, you know. So, it, you know, this round robin's back to your, uh, you know, schooling thing. It's it's you just have to you, a lot of things you just have to learn in the field. I believe. No, I think you're right. Um, on that note, here's a bit of an interesting one. Okay. Um, we're living in this time where, you know. A lot of musicians have home setups uh, in some shape or form, usually mm-hmm. just a, a sort of in the box. I'm to no exception. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, it's great. Um, I still believe in the power of, you know, a good engineer and a good studio personally. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I digress. A lot of people are releasing music independently. It's great. There's more music getting made. It's I think I think I read a stat the other day that 75,000 songs get released to Spotify a day now. I don't know if that's true. It's just what I read. Um, but what, what would you advise these... I'm going to air quote uh, the phrase home producers now because I'm not in any way um, sort of dissing that or demeaning it. I think some of these guys are geniuses. Um, but, well, absolutely. but with that being said, um, there's a lot who, who maybe aren't geniuses. <laughs> so what would you advise, um, guys who are working as home producers, uh, self producers, bedroom producers, okay. whatever you want to call it on just trying to get better product, better quality on their products. So are you talking about better quality product on the, the producing side or the engineering side? I'm thinking more the engineering side because I don't want to take ideas away from production here because I know that like, you know, there's there's minimalists produ- producing sort of styles. There's, there's guys who want to add every idea in their head styles. So I'm thinking more on audio quality. You know, I think if, for me, if, if I was jumping in on this, 
I would say mm-hmm. I think guys need to capture the audio signal as good as they possibly well, can. Well, that's that's the that you took it out of my mouth. That would be my first suggestion. Stop trying to fix it in post. Cool. Um, you know, I have like for instance, I, I have a um a, a good friend producer named Mike Napolitano. He's very uh very good producer. He produced a lot of uh, great records for like Ani DeFranco and Blind Melon and Squirrel and Zippers and stuff like that. And um, Mike is a, a is a fantastic engineer uh, producer who learned under Daniel Landwap. And and the way Mike does it, it's I mean it's fascinating even to me. Like he'll he'll have a <laughs> he'll have a a sixty or seventy channel uh, mix going with like two plugins on it. Wow. You know, like he, he just doesn't, he commits going in. Like, so he will, I've seen him do it. He'll spend a bunch of time, you know, on a guitar signal, like not just, and he kind of, you know, he likes the chaos. Like he's not going for perfection on a guitar signal. He's going for something that's sonically interesting. So like when you think about, um, I'll give you some, some audio examples. And this is another thing that I would suggest for engine I'm, I'm hanging my head right now just because I, I say like people don't listen. It's, it's like you're in, you're in an industry. I just can't, I feel like I beat my head against the concrete telling people this, listen, they stop looking, listen, you know, they, they, people hear with their eyes yeah. so much. It's unbelievable. I was recently in a session with a, um, you know, a producer who basically the signal going in, I can hear it distorting all over the place. And, um, and I'm going, Whoa, 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 stop, stop. Like the, the, this, the signal is, is your, it's distorting. And they look at pro tools and because it's not clipping in pro tools, it, it was okay. And I'm like, I'm like, you're clipping the front end of the, of the mic pre, you know, like you're, there's an input stage of them. There's an input stage and an output stage of that mic pre. It's got an input gain. It doesn't just have one gain knob. It's got an input and an output. So just like a console, if you look at a console and you turn the gain up all the way, the knob at the top, and you turn it all the way up and you turn the fader down, 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 and it's distorting but it's not clipping in pro tools. That's the, it's just like a guitar amp. Yeah. It's like if you, if you have a, you turn the, the quote unquote gain, uh, up on a guitar amp, but you turn the volume down, what does it do? It distorts. Yeah. That's how you get distortion. you know? So just because something is not clipping in pro tools doesn't mean it's not clipping in life. You know, it's, it's even possible to clip the mic because there's too much SPL going to the capsule. You're collapsing the capsule. You know, so it's people, these types of things, you don't need to know about the, um, the the physics or the engineering of gear in order to know these things. You just have to listen. Does that sound pleasurable? Like, does that sound good? Like, or or are you just going to try and fix that? Like, why don't we fix it here so that we commit going in? And like I said, when you, sometimes it doesn't have to be about a perfect signal. It just has to be about a vibe. Like if you listen to the guitar sound on Money for Nothing from Dire Straits, that guitar sound was an accident. It's like they, that guitar sound came from some 
mic that was left on on accident in the room. It wasn't the close mic of the amp. Interesting. It was some it was some mic that was happened to be on in the room that they left it on on accident and and they're like whoa where's that sound coming from and, and they said oh it's the whatever the talkback mic or whatever and and so that's how they that's the mic that sound they used it was like a mic that was you know twenty feet away or something wow you know so it doesn't necessarily mean that that I'm going for audio perfection but I'm going for something that is is sonically interesting sonic landscapes that's what we're going for yeah you know so i think that if more people my advice to people who are bedroom engineers is if you're not doing and even if you are doing stuff in native instruments or midi or keyboards or whatever you have to you have to listen because those are full range instruments what i mean by that is that you know those are instruments that produce sonics from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz and beyond yeah you know so if you have all of these keyboard sounds that are building up all of these you know you need to make space in the recording for things like you can't you know if you have a piano sound that piano is producing you know sound because it's not a real piano it's a midi or, or native instruments that's usually producing sound way into the subsonic regions that you need to you need to roll off if you want it to sound like a real piano, you know, or you need to um, you need to you know make room so that everything lives in a space, in a in a two dimensional sonic space, yeah, or really a three three dimensional sonic space if you're listening on uh on speakers, you know, it's so uh, so that would be my my advice is to listen and also to listen to to other you know famous recordings like and I, I can't tell you how many people i've seen will try to mix things and they don't um you know they don't use something to compare to like a comparison track something like there's no palette cleanser hmm. you know you get you get so lost inside of your own song that you don't have any reference like it's you can't even eat sushi in america without having ginger as a palate cleanser <laughs> you know <laughs> that's true it's like you need to if you're listening to the same song for six eight hours you need to listen to something else while you're doing it in between in order to to go oh whoa i'm way off my low end is way too much or you might wh whatever you know you need to, to to a b against other things and and also my other, um, you know, there are other a bunch of other tricks, but another one is take breaks, yeah. especially if you're mixing. You know, your ears are not designed to to mix five, six hours at a time. You need to take breaks. Yeah. You know, because that palate cleanser of taking a break and coming back, I'll always make the best mix moves first thing in the morning. Um, if I do a mix and I spend all day on it, the next day when I walk in first thing in the morning, I'll know exactly if I did something wrong. Wow. That's cool. Uh, Jack, I've only got two more questions for you, man. Um, sure. The first one is kind of um, in response to the previous one. And that is, mm -hmm. what, what advice could you give up and coming artists or maybe not even up and coming artists, but artists who've never come into a pro studio like yours? Um, what would you sort of say they should or could do to prep and come in to be more prepared? Well, I'll, I'll answer that with a, you know, a provisional condition. It depends on how much money you have to spend. You know, if, 
studios definitely have a vibe, you know, so there are people who money is not really a factor and they want to come in the studio and they want to kind of write in the studio, you know, and they want to spend time and just go slow. Like I've, I've really done projects that are across the board. I've had, I think my record was I had a band. So well-known band uh, came in. It was my first foray with them. And we've done multiple records together. Uh, they came in and we did 19 songs in two days. Wow. And, uh, and it was, it was done. We did, we did three, there was like three albums worth of songs in mm. two days. And I think, I think it actually ended up being two albums. What they did was they ended up releasing like 12 songs on one album. And then they, the leftovers became another EP or something. But, um, anyway, that that was my and it was great it was they were great records like these weren't like it wasn't like they were like shoddily done they, they were great records and they did very well um but um so i've had that and i've also had people come in where they come in for a 10-hour day to do one song you know because they want to they want to take their time they want to make sure everything's mic'd right they want to get a vibe going they you know so you know, I've even had quote unquote one song take multiple days just because as far as the tracking is concerned, just because they want to take their time. And that's OK. Uh, it's So you have to you have to get a pace going, you know. So so that's one thing I would say is I would determine as a young artist who wants to go into the studio, I would determine what pace you want to keep. And um, and that pace can be determined also by budget, you know, so. Um, what I would say is if you need to have that, that breakneck pace where you're trying to just get as much done as possible, then, uh, then I would make sure that you have demos of the songs, you know, so that, you know, cause a lot of times that demo can really provide a lot of guidance. Like, um, I'm in the middle of doing a rock band right now. They came in and every song was demoed out like in completion like drums everything and um that's something that is kind of a, a little bit of an antiquated thing because generally like you know i've worked mostly with bands now to where they'll come in with some pro tools demo and that demo actually kind of becomes the song like like hey this is the demo we have and it's on a grid already and there's scratch vocals and there's this and that whatever but sometimes it's like wow this is that I don't know how you got that. We got this cool guitar sound by Mike and the amp with an iPhone and whatever, like, and it's in the Pro Tools session. But like, instead of trying to recreate that, that becomes the sound, you know? So sometimes you'll use little elements of the demo and the demo literally morphs into the actual song. And um, the young artist that I was telling you about earlier, about the one that we have, you know, a lot of contractual stuff going on. That's actually the way that we're working, where the demo is becoming the song we'll go in we'll write together and do these really scale down demos and but they're done the demos are done in pro tools and so those pro tools like the things like the tempo the grid where things land the markers in pro tool all those things become the actual session and we just fill in all those spaces you know so um so yeah if you're a, a, a somebody who's going in 
and you're going to try to do a record and you have a DAW, um, I would walk in with, if you have Pro Tools, walk in with Pro Tools sessions with demos. If you don't have Pro Tools, make stems that have that are locked to a grid from your DAW so that we can import them into Pro Tools and listen to what's going on and use that. And that will save a lot of time, you know? So especially in the engineering end of things of, because then it doesn't leave a lot to um, to the, I don't want to say the imagination, but it doesn't leave a lot of, of ambiguity. Like it's, this is what we're, we're going for something like this. It, it, it's like even a movie, think about it. A movie is, is usually almost exclusively storyboarded. Now. Yeah. You know, so you, you, nobody would go in usually to make any kind of movie of any kind of length that doesn't have a storyboard or some type of, you know, a shot list, you know? So why would you treat the music industry any differently? Yeah, very true. And a great point, you know? All right, here's a, here's a bit of a loaded one, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure at points you've probably covered certain things here already, but you can answer this from uh, either a pro- producer point of view, an engineer point of view, a musician point of view, all three if you like. Um, what do you think has been the greatest piece of advice you've ever received in regards to your career? Hmm. I don't know. Um, I, I don't have that information ready, but I will. I will give you. How about this? I'll answer your question with with a mantra um, that I always try to stick with, and that's to always bet on yourself. I like that. And and I, the one thing that has helped me through all of this is the knowledge that I knew I believed in myself and, and I bet on myself. So I put my money where my mouth is and, but you got, but you got to follow through. So, and I'm, I'm somebody who generally follows through, you know, so I'm somebody who, who, you know, my, my wife says it all the time, you show up. And so, and even if, even if I have like, like for instance, like I, I'm somebody who, who takes a lot of pride in, in, like I said, from like Hitchcock, Hitchcock went to, went to work every day for those hours and he always wore a suit. I, I, you know, took a shower, got dressed, did my hair, looked good and smelled good for this phone interview, (laughs) you know? So, so I, I bet on myself. And because I know that once I put my mind to something, I can do it. And it's that, that unwavering belief in one's ability, you know, even, no matter where, and this list went, this went even when my ability wasn't, wasn't there, like as an engineer, you know, I, I didn't even know what I was doing, but I, I knew that I would get there, you know, so believe in yourself, believe in yourself and 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 when I say also believe in myself, I also I didn't have a fallback. I didn't have a backup plan. There was no contingency plan. Failure wasn't an option, you know. So so I you know I did not ever plan to fail, you know. And and music and producing has 
really, you know, I'm, I'm the kid who said I wanted to learn how to play guitar. And I sat in my room for eight hours a day for years practicing guitar. Yeah. You know, and, and it became a profession. And now I said, I want to learn how to make records. And I want, I want to make records that are better than the people that, that I worshiped growing up, you know, and I don't know if I've gotten there yet <laughs> because those records are still awesome to me and I probably never will get there, but it's not about getting there. It's about being, um, it's about moving, uh, in that direction. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? As long as you're not regressing, you know, um, I, I basically just believe in yourself and always bet on yourself. That's cool, man. Very powerful stuff. All right, Jack. That's been excellent. Thank you so much for your time and your your willingness to impart wisdom and just the overall great advice, man. I'm sure our listeners are going to get something from it. I know I did. Thank you so much. Thank you, Travis. I appreciate it. And if any of your listeners want to reach out, you can reach me at my website, jackmealy.com. Excellent. And I'll list all that stuff in the show notes as well, um, along with just some references of your work and stuff like that. You're the man, dude. Truly, truly are. I can't thank you enough. Um, I will talk to you real soon. Thank you so much, Travis. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Alrighty. There we have it. I'd like to thank Jack Mealy for his time. Uh, all his links will be listed in the show notes, so check him out. He's an amazing guy, an amazing musician. Um thank you all for your time and for continuing to support the podcast i truly appreciate it my name is travis mark you can find out more about me at travismark.com you can find out more about the musicians mentor at musicians-mentor.com please do me a favor rate review share just help us out in that way we truly appreciate it thank you everybody i'll talk to you soon peace